We open the scriptures together to the epistle of 2 Timothy, first chapter. And we'll read together the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. We end our reading of the scriptures here. On the basis of this chapter and the rest of God's inspired word, we consider Lord's Day 7 and its instruction concerning faith. Question 20 begins the Lord's Day asking, Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No, 
only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, and not only to others, but to me also remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. What then Or what is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. And then follows those articles, the Apostles' Creed, which we know by heart. Beloved in the Lord, the... Opening Lord's Days of the second section of the Catechism, which we have recently begun, are explaining to us the only way of deliverance, and have set before us now in Lord's Day 6, the only deliverer, the only way of deliverance from our sin and its punishment is satisfaction of God's justice and satisfaction can only be made through atonement. And the only deliverer is the qualified mediator who in one person is fully human, perfectly righteous, and fully God. And as we have seen, such a Savior cannot possibly come from below. He cannot be produced by mankind. He must be God-provided. And that Savior is no other than our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. Jesus Christ, as the only qualified mediator, has performed that work which is necessary for delivering us from our sins. He has satisfied the justice of God through his atonement on the cross of Calvary. And he has has fulfilled every jot and tittle of God's law through his life of perfect obedience. And has thereby merited and obtained for us forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. Which now are freely given to us merely of grace. And that wonderful News, the good news of salvation accomplished by the one Savior, Jesus Christ, is revealed and proclaimed to us in the gospel. We come to Lord's Day 7, which now sets before us a very important question. Given all of that truth we have just looked at, how do I become a partaker Of this Christ and all his benefits. How do I personally receive the benefits of the finished work of the one and only mediator between God and men? How do I come into possession and how do I consciously enjoy the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation obtained for Me by Jesus Christ. And the catechism's answer in Lord's Day 7, which is the Bible's answer, is this. By faith alone. 
We do not become a partaker of Christ by anything else, by any other means. Not by works, not by anything else, but by faith alone. We do not receive any blessing from God through any other means, but by faith alone. For God is pleased by this unique instrument which He has designed. He is pleased by faith to communicate to us all of those blessings which He freely gives, graciously gives. On account of the finished work of Christ. The universal testimony of the scriptures is that we are saved by grace. Alone. In Christ alone. Through faith alone. And it is through that. Or it is that through faith alone part. That we, consider, that we look at this morning. In Lord's Day 7. So let's look at the teaching of Lord's Day 7. Under the theme. God's gift of saving faith. We're going to look at what the scriptures teach about faith. What it is. Where it comes from. How it functions. And who God gives it to. And so our three points are first what it is. Then whence it is. And finally whose it is. Faith. Faith is singularly unique. Among all God's gifts to his people. There's nothing else like it. There is nothing else that can be substituted for it. There is nothing that can perform the function that God has designed faith to perform. It is a unique and glorious gift of God. What is it? In general, faith is the spiritual power by which we partake of Jesus Christ... And receive his benefits. First thing for us to think about for a moment this morning. Is salvation what it really consists of. Salvation consists in being a partaker of Christ. And all his benefits. Salvation is inseparably bound up. With the person of Jesus Christ. So much so that if we flip back to Lord's Day 6. And we look at question and answer 8. We find a quotation of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. As the catechism explains who our mediator, who our savior is. In answer 18. Our mediator is our Lord Jesus Christ. And now the quotation from 1 Corinthians 1 30. Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's shorthand for all of salvation. Complete salvation in all of its fullness. That's who Jesus is to us. Jesus is not merely the provider of salvation. Though we speak of of him that way and that's not wrong. But more than that, Jesus is Our salvation. He is made unto us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. That gives us a full orbed view of salvation. Salvation is not merely the enjoyment of particular benefits. That that is true. 
There is a multitude of benefits that we receive and enjoy. Salvation is not merely leaving this world and going to heaven. Though that is true. That is part of salvation. But ultimately salvation is having Christ. Belonging to Christ. Being connected to Christ. Living out of Christ. Fellowship with Christ. Christ is our salvation. The very name Jesus tells us that. Children here, you know what Jesus' name means, do you not? Jehovah's salvation. That's who Jesus is. Our salvation is inseparably bound up in the very person of Jesus Christ. And so to be saved is to have Christ. To be saved is to belong to Christ. To be saved is to have the whole Christ. All of Him. It's all of Him or nothing. Just as the Christian life is this. Christ owning all of us or nothing. Christ will have all of us or nothing. There's nothing in between. Having Christ. Belonging to Christ. Union with Him. And being everlastingly filled with all of His fullness. That's salvation. And that's, that's what Christ has obtained for us. When He suffered and died on the cross. And when He fulfilled the law for us. When He made satisfaction for our sins. When He fulfilled all righteousness for us. He earned for us not just a place in heaven. He earned for us not just a multitude of benefits. But He earned for us this Highest blessedness of belonging to Him and having Him and living out of Him and being His and He being ours for eternity. Partaking Christ. How do we partake of Him here and now in this life, in this world? How do we enjoy Christ And all of the benefits that are stored up in Him. That's the question of Lord's Day 7. And the answer to that question then is faith. Faith is the gift of God whereby we apprehend and appropriate and enjoy Christ and all of His benefits. Faith is the means by which we partake of Him. That's the unique glory of faith. That's the function faith has that nothing else can be a substitute for. Faith partakes of Christ. Nothing else can do this. Not even hope. Not even love. This is faith's unique function. By faith God communicates to us Christ in all of his benefits. By faith God causes us to receive Christ in all his benefits. And for this reason, faith is in a category all by itself. Faith is not another good work. It is not even the best of good works. It's in a category all by itself. It is its own thing. It is the unique spiritual power by which we partake of Christ and receive His benefits. It is the unique spiritual power that God works in the elect believer whereby he embraces Christ, clings to Christ, and draws out of Christ all things that are necessary for his salvation. And even as we 
we think about faith in those terms, and as we explain this unique gift of God, we see it's a mystery, is it not? Yes, we can understand what faith is. That's why we're having a sermon on faith. That's why Lord's Day 7 can explain in such detail the reality of faith. And yet, even though we can understand this gift of God to a point, faith is a mystery. It's something very mysterious. How do we wrap our minds around this spiritual power by which the elect believer clings to Christ and draws out of Christ spiritual blessings? How do we wrap our minds around what it means to be connected to Christ by faith? How do we wrap our minds around the spiritual power by which the believer taps into the strength of the Almighty? Faith, which even if it has the small size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, is able to move mountains. Truly, this is something mysterious, wonderful, beyond our human comprehension. And that impresses itself upon us when we look at a couple of verses from Scripture now which set before us this reality that faith is this God-given spiritual power by which we are partakers of Christ and His benefits. Ephesians 3 verse 17. Here the Apostle is, is praying for the Ephesian Christians and he makes this marvelous petition. In Ephesians 3 verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. There's faith. Functioning as God designed it. As that spiritual power, that unique means by which we partake of Christ. Such that the apostle says, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. By faith we partake of him. Or John 1 verse 12. But as many as received him. As received Christ. And there received is referring to faith. As many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe in his name. What a wonder. By faith. We partake of Christ and receive His benefits. That's why we refer to true faith as saving faith. Not because faith by its own power or in it of itself saves us. That's not the case. Faith itself does not save. But faith clings to the Savior who does save. Faith is not itself the power by which we are saved, but faith embraces and connects us to the one who powerfully saves us. And that's what we see in those two verses. By faith, Christ dwells in our hearts, and Christ is our salvation, and Christ's power is the power whereby we are saved. As faith receives Christ, we have the power to become the sons of God, as John 1 verse 12 says. What a marvelous thing this faith is. A figure that the Bible gives is engrafting. That's what we have briefly described in question and answer 20. Where we're asked, are all men's 
Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No, only those who are engrafted into him and receive his benefits by a true faith. That's a a figure that helps us understand this connection. Faith connecting us to Christ. It's like the agricultural technique of grafting. Grafting is when a farmer cuts a notch in the trunk of a tree. And then into that notch he fits a branch from another plant or another tree. That branch has no life of itself. But once it is fitted into the notch of the tree, that branch becomes a part of the tree. It becomes one plant with that tree. And the life that flows through that tree courses into the branch and gives it life. And the result of that is that that engrafted branch begins to sprout green leaves and begins to bear fruit. And that's an illustration of us, of faith and Christ. Christ is the living tree. We are the branches. We have no life of ourselves. By ourselves, we are dead and dying unto eternal death. But the grace of God takes us and puts us into Christ. Grafts us into Him. All salvation blessings are in Him. Just as the life is found in that tree, so too, new life, salvation, everything is found in Christ. God connects us to Christ through the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately you can say that the Holy Spirit Himself is the union between the believer and Christ because the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ, indwells Christ the head and indwells us as His members. And the Holy Spirit keeps us in communion with Christ. And the Holy Spirit works in us that wonder, that unique gift of faith by which we draw out of Christ all that we need for our salvation and spiritual life. Just as an engrafted branch draws out of that tree the life-giving sap that it needs to live, to sprout its leaves, and to bear fruit. And so here with this illustration we can see in a visual way how faith is a spiritual power by which we cling to Jesus Christ and find in Him all that is necessary for salvation. But now, going on in the Catechism's instruction as to what faith is, we can get more specific. Faith in general is that spiritual power whereby we partake of Christ and receive His benefits. But now the Catechism, in explaining what active faith is in the life of the believer sets before us the two main component parts of faith. And that's what we find in question and answer 21. What is true faith? And the answer in short is true faith is a certain knowledge of Christ as He is revealed in the Word of God. And true faith is an assured confidence, that is, a hearty trust. In Christ. So let's now look briefly at those two elements of saving faith. First, 
It's a certain knowledge. A certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed in His Word. And that's biblical. That's the reason we read from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Specifically because verse 12 of 2 Timothy 1 sets before us both of these component parts of a living faith. We'll find them both in this verse. So starting with knowledge. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Now this, the apostle says. For I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. There, faith, believing, and knowing, knowing Christ, are put together. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? It means you know Him. You know Him. Another Bible verse that sets this reality before us clearly, that faith is a certain knowledge of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4 verse 16. 1 John 4 verse 16, the Apostle John says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. There's there's the center of the gospel, the good news, the love that God hath towards us, the love that is supremely demonstrated and powerfully expressed unto our salvation in the gift of Jesus Christ. We have known and believed. Believing is knowing. Faith is knowing. Certain knowledge. And the content of that knowledge is Christ. Knowledge always has content. Knowledge is not merely a feeling or an intuition, but it is knowledge. Knowledge of truth. The truth of Christ. And the truth of the promises of the gospel. Indeed, as the catechism says, all of the truth contained in God's word. Truth which is propositional, objective. Truth that is not the construct of the human mind or the construct of human culture or something that can be boiled down merely to human preference or human taste. But truth, the truth that faith knows is the truth of God. The truth that proceeds from the mouth of God. The God who cannot lie as Titus 1 verse 2 tells us. It is Truth that is unchanging reality as determined by the very being and will of the God whose name is I am that I am. Solid truth. Yes, it is true. Sometimes our understanding of truth is defective or confused on account Of our own sins. Sometimes our culture. Or our background. Or our own weaknesses. Affects our understanding of truth. But the truth itself. God's truth. Is not a culturally conditioned truth. It's not a relative truth. It is an objectively solid. Rock solid truth. As unchanging as the very being of God. All of that truth, 
All of that truth contained in the scriptures, which as the catechism explains in the last couple question and answers of our Lord's Day, can be comprehensively yet concisely summarized in the twelve articles of the Apostles' Creed. That is the content of saving faith. Faith is knowledge. A certain, sure, fixed and firm knowledge of Christ and His truth. But now, this point must also be emphasized as we think about what faith is. And now, faith's activity of knowing. We must understand the nature of this knowledge. The nature of this knowing of faith. It's personal. It's experiential. It's living. It's vibrant. It's not mere book knowledge. The kind of book knowledge children you might gain when you study history in school. You learn a lot of facts about history. Interesting facts. They may even grab your attention. But it's, it's book learning. You may have learned about World War II in the past. You might know a lot about it. But you haven't gone through it. You don't know it in your own experience. Faith is not just book learning. Nor is it merely theoretical knowledge. But it is personal knowledge. And and 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 emphasizes that to us. When it says, For I know whom I have believed. Faith knows Him. Doesn't just know about Him. But faith knows Him. And we all sense the difference there, do we not? You know your close friend. You know your spouse. You know your brother. You know your sister. You know your child. You know them in a personal way. And there's a chasm of difference between your knowing of them and your knowing of certain facts that you have learned about history or something else. It's a personal knowledge of love. That's what faith is. It's relational. It's a connection to Christ Himself. It's knowing about Christ, yes. But much more, it's knowing Him. Knowing Him personally. As the Savior who came and suffered and died for me. The Savior who loves me. The Savior who gave Himself for me. The Savior in whom I find everything that I need. The Savior who is my joy, my peace, my strength, my refuge, everything to me. I know Him. That's the knowledge of faith. And so you see that faith As it knows Christ. That's faith embracing Him. That's faith clinging to Him. But now along with that knowledge. The catechism explains to us. Faith is also an assured confidence. So the catechism says. An assured confidence. Which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart. That not only to others. But to me also. Remission of sin. Everlasting righteousness and salvation. Are freely given by God. Merely of grace Only for the sake of Christ's merits. Assured confidence. 
That means a firm trust and a steadfast reliance upon Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 sets this second element of faith right beside the first. Notice that. Paul says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Am persuaded. And what's being expressed there is not that Paul, by logical deduction, has come to a conclusion that Christ and God his Father is able to keep that which he which he has committed to him against that day. But am persuaded refers to a hearty confidence. That's the idea of those words. It's talking about an assured confidence, a deep and unshaken trust. At this point in Paul's life and ministry, he's a prisoner. Came out in the passage we read. He's looking ahead towards what seems to be the more and more likely end to his earthly life. The end of his earthly ministry. And now Paul gives voice to the beautiful trust that belongs to what faith is. Paul says, I have committed all that I am to my God and my Savior. I have committed my life. I have committed my spirit into his hands. And I am confident that he is able to keep that which, he, that which I have committed unto him. Against that day, against the day of my death, against the day of final judgment, I am safe in his hands. That's what Paul is saying. Because my God and my Savior is perfectly reliable. I have him. I belong to him. I am safe in his hands. I trust. That's faith. That's what faith is. That's faith in action. In assured confidence. And so we see that the nature of faith's confidence is it's a childlike confidence. An unquestioning, unskeptical confidence in God. The way a child trusts his parents. The way a child trusts Father to provide for him. That's the kind of trust that faith has towards God. The believer trusts Christ then by ceasing to look anywhere else for salvation. Trust in Christ means ceasing to trust himself or any other creature. The believer flees to Jesus alone for his refuge, for his salvation, for his strength. He relies and depends upon the satisfaction and the atonement of Christ. The believer renounces his own works as something done to earn salvation, but rather trusts in that finished work of Christ alone for salvation. The believer surrenders himself, commits his spirit to the Lord, leans upon him in life and in death, resting in him in time and for eternity. That's the trust of faith. And you see again how that fits with the general idea of faith as embracing and clinging to Christ and drawing from him All that we need. Faith trusts. Embraces. Clings. To Christ. 
That's what faith is. It's a wonderful gift, is it not? We go back to the point that was made earlier. We can't fully wrap our minds around it. What a gift God has given us. That faith that lives in your heart and mind. That faith which knows, which trusts Christ. No gift is greater. No gift is given to us is greater in this world than our faith. So that's the first point. What this faith is. A wonderful gift of God. And now that leads us to the second point. A gift of God. Whence it is. That is, where does faith come from? A very important point for the believer to understand. How do I have this faith? How does anyone have this true faith? And the negative side is this. That faith is not something of any human invention. It is not a man-made thing. It is not a man-produced thing. Faith doesn't come about in the life of a person by man finding in himself the ability or the will to believe. Man does not, by nature, have some latent power sleeping in his heart that in the right conditions, in the right circumstances, with the right trigger or with the right effort, will awake and burst forth. Man does not have by nature some leftover goodness in him after the fall. Some leftover goodness that's looking, that's reaching out, that's grasping in the dark, trying to find God or trying to find Christ. As the scriptures teach us, man by nature is lost. John 1 verse 5, And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And that doesn't just mean that the darkness which is a description of man, man in his natural state is darkness. It's not just that the darkness doesn't understand the light, but that the darkness cannot grasp, cannot comprehend, cannot even reach out for the light. Rather, the darkness shrinks and flees from the light. Faith is not something of human origin. The mediator could not come from below. And faith in the mediator cannot come from below. The testimony of the scriptures as expressed in our catechism is that faith is entirely God-given. It is a gift of God. It is something God works in the heart of his people by his spirit. So that through the work of the Holy Spirit... The believer embraces Christ, partakes of Christ, and receives his benefits. We find that very idea embedded in answer 21. As the catechism explains the assured confidence of faith, the catechism says this about that assured confidence, and by implication about faith certain knowledge as well, which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart. Faith is a fruit of the inward operation of the Holy Spirit. A Bible passage that shows us that very vividly. If you turn to Acts 16, 
Acts 16, we have the history of the Apostle Paul's ministry in Philippi and the establishment of the Philippian congregation. Paul comes to Philippi, which is largely a Gentile city. Since there are so few Jews in that city that there wasn't even a synagogue, Paul goes out to the riverside, outside of the city, where a few met to pray. And one of those who met there at the riverside regularly was Lydia, the seller of purple. And now in Acts 16, verse 14, we read this about her. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. There's where faith comes from. The text doesn't say that Lydia opened her own heart to the word, or that Lydia found within herself the power to believe, so that she Drawing upon the resources of her own strength made a decisive choice to believe. No. God opened her heart. So that she attended unto the things which were spoken. There's the gift of faith being given. God gives it. God works it. God brings it to conscious expression. The language of our Belgic Confession puts it very beautifully in Article 22 where it describes the Holy Spirit kindling, kindling true faith in the heart of God's people. The Holy Spirit alone can start that fire of faith. So that leads then to this, how does the Holy Spirit kindle? That saving faith. How does that come to be? Well the first thing to see here is that faith is first given at regeneration. Regeneration we understand is that first saving operation of the spirit in the heart of the believer. The power of faith is contained within that seed of new life. Which the spirit plants in our hearts. Whereby we are born again from above. When we're born again spiritually, we're born again with new spiritual eyes. The eyes of faith. Just like a newborn child is born with eyes, but those eyes don't see very far or very well yet. But as that child grows and matures, that child's vision and power of sight increases as well. So it is with faith. When we are spiritually born again, We are given this gift of faith. And after that gift of faith is first given to us, the Spirit continues to work to cultivate that gift so that our spiritual vision is enhanced, is sharpened, grows. Faith is a living thing that the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, cultivates as He works in the believer. That's where faith comes from. And once that faculty or that power of faith is implanted in the child of God by regeneration, that faith must then be brought to conscious expression and activity. Faith is not a static thing. Faith is active. 
The catechism makes that so very plain when it speaks of faith as being certain knowledge and assured confidence. That's activity. The Spirit who gives the gift of faith and plants it in the heart of the child of God at regeneration, the Spirit then works and by means of the Word draws that faith out, brings it to conscious activity as knowledge and confidence. And the Spirit does this by bringing faith into contact with the Word. It is the Word of God that activates faith. It is the Word of God that gives faith its knowledge. It is the Word of God that works the confidence of faith. And so we see that this gift of God is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But then the Holy Spirit uses the Word to activate that faith and to cause it to grow and to express itself more and more. The Holy Spirit brings faith to the conscious activity of knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ. And this can come to expression in different ways in the lives of different people. For example, this can happen suddenly in the life of an adult convert. Someone who lived in unbelief for a part of their life. At some point, God invisibly operates upon that person's heart in regeneration. And gives that first gift of faith. And plants the power of faith. And then God in His sovereign leading brings that person into contact with the gospel. And By means of that gospel, the Holy Spirit works and brings that person to faith so that they know and they put their trust in Christ. That's what happens on the mission field. That's what happens when an adult person is converted and comes to faith for the first time. It's the Holy Spirit working, bringing bringing that gift of faith into contact with the Word so that it comes to lively expression. Other times, as is often the case within the church, within the sphere of the covenant, faith grows gradually and matures progressively under the consistent ministry of the word. As covenant children grow up in Christian homes and in the church, parents bring the word to them. They hear the word in the catechism room and off the pulpit and gradually and progressively that faith, which is often given To elect children very early. That faith grows. Matures. Through the consistent operation of the Spirit in their hearts. So now to to wrap up this second point. A couple of applications that are important for us. In the first place. One for parents. The truth of Lord's Day 7. Parents stresses the importance of. Of teaching our children the faith. Teaching them the knowledge of the faith. Pointing them to Jesus Christ. You can say that this is the chief calling of a parent. Coming even before. Raising your children to be successful in this world. Or equipping them to live in this world. Your number one calling. Is imparting the faith to them. We see how the Apostle Paul commends the grandmother and the mother of Timothy who did just that in verse 5. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee 
also. These two godly women taught young Timothy and imparted that faith to him. But as we said earlier, faith is the fruit of the Spirit's operation. There's an important reminder for us. We cannot create faith in the hearts of our children. Man can't produce faith. And so that's a comfort to us as parents, that that weight doesn't rest on our shoulders. God alone works faith. But He is pleased to use us as the means, as we bring that word, as we teach our children, as we point them to Christ. Not only with words, but the way we live, the way we discipline our children. Christ-centered. Our parenting ought to point to Christ. And that's a, that's a means. God uses to form that faith, to bring that faith to maturity in our children. God alone forms faith, but God uses the means of His Word, which we are called to bring. But now a second application is that the truth of this Lord's Day stresses the importance of the call of the Gospel being sounded forth. The call of the gospel is that call that we read throughout the New Testament scriptures. The call that the apostles preached wherever they went. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign spirit uses his word as he wills. It's a double-edged sword. That call of the gospel is to be preached promiscuously unto all. And the sovereign spirit is pleased to use that word to harden some. Those who are not God's people to harden them. But the Sovereign Spirit also uses the Word to work faith in the hearts of His elect people. To stir up that faith. To move them to repentance. To convert them. To sanctify them. Thus we need to hear that call of the Gospel. Repent and believe. It's a call that wakes us up when we're spiritually sleepy. It's a call that stirs us from sinful patterns in our life that we may have slipped into. It's a call that we as a congregation need to hear. Because it's a powerful call by which the Spirit works. To strengthen faith. To strengthen us in our life of godliness. But now, at last we come to the question, whose is it? To whom is this faith given? That's the question with which the Lord's Day begins and it's the question with which we end. All men fell in Adam. All men are justly condemned in Adam. Are all men who fell in Adam saved? The teaching of the Bible as reflected in our catechism is no. And experience testifies to this. And some would say, is this not a failure of God then? If all fell in Adam, why does not God save all men? Here man tries to bring God down to man's own level. And man judges God's counsel and God's works by human standards. And man says, salvation is deficient if all human beings are not saved. But the scriptures reveal that that was not God's purpose. It is not God's purpose to save every human being. But to save those whom he is pleased to make partakers of Jesus Christ. That is his elect. 
And this in no way tarnishes the glory of salvation. For the glory of salvation is not determined by the number of those saved. But is determined by the glory of God's work itself. The very fact that God is pleased to save unworthy sinners. To bring them back from spiritual death and restore them to life with Him. That salvation in and of itself is a wonder. And the glory of salvation is found in the character of salvation itself rather than the number of those saved. God is sovereign. And God is sovereign in His gift giving. He is sovereign in the giving of faith. He gives faith to whom He is pleased to give it. He is under obligation to give it not to anyone. That he gives faith to any is itself a wonder of grace. Now apply that personally. Believer, you believe. Why? Because you were given to Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And God set his love upon you. Not because you made yourself worthy of it. But simply because. God is pleased to glorify himself in you. And pleased to set his love upon you. You have not made yourself to differ. And now God has given you that faith. Whereby you believe. It's God's gift to you. By which you may know. The one to whom you were given in eternity. It's God's gift to you so that you may trustingly cling to the one who came for you and suffered and died for you and purchased you with his own precious blood. What a gift. Cherish that faith. Cultivate that faith. Bring that faith into daily contact with the word of God for its strengthening. Take not that faith for granted. Make that faith the center of your life. Live out that faith. There is no greater gift In your possession. Than your faith. Faith by which. You partake. And taste. Christ. And his blessings. Thanks be to God. For this. Unspeakable gift. Of faith. In Christ. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the gift of faith. Make our faith precious unto us. Strengthen us to live out of faith. To walk by faith and not by sight. And in all things, at all times, to cling to Christ and rest in Christ. This we ask for his sake. Amen.